Please join me in welcoming to the stage ID Insights, Alice Redfern. Great, thank you for having me. Um, so I'm really excited to be here today and to speak about this study. Uh, Buddy, who is the CEO of ID Insight, actually presented a year and a half ago at EA Global in San Francisco and was able to give an introduction to what we were doing and some of the piloting results. And since then, we've finished piloting and done a full scale-up of the same study. So I'm here today to give the first presentation of the actual results of what we found, which is very exciting for me. Um, so what I'm going to talk about... First, I'm just going to try and convince you why we should capture preferences in the first place, and specifically why we want to capture preferences from the recipients of aid, because they're typically missed in this equation. Then I'm going to really dive into what we did in this study. I'm going to walk you through what we did and hopefully convince you that it is feasible to capture the moral preferences of aid recipients. And then we'll get into the results, which is the really exciting bit. So we're going to walk through how these preferences and the moral reasonings behind them differ from the typical EA and how this might change resource allocation decisions across the global development sector. So why are we doing this? So I think we all know that effective altruists rely on value judgments in order to determine how to do the most good. We can evaluate charities, and a huge amount of progress has been made in charity evaluation, and we do a really good job of trying to figure out what charities do the best work. But it only gives you part of the answer. You can evaluate a charity like AMF and you can find out how many lives are saved when you hand out bed nets. Or you can evaluate a charity like Give Directly and find out the impact of giving out cash transfers. But what it doesn't give you is this cross-outcome comparison. At some point, someone somewhere has to make a decision about how to allocate resources across different priorities. The kind of trade-offs you face are, at a higher level, if we want to do the most good, should we be saving a child's life from malaria or should we give a household money? Similar trade-offs, should we save a younger individual or an older individual? And these are the kind of trade-offs that an organization like GiveWell has to work through every day in trying to figure out how to prioritize across these. And we know that these value judgments are really difficult and that there's a lack of relevant data to actually support these decisions. The current status in development falls into one of these three categories. One, people avoid trade-offs completely by not comparing across outcomes. So people quite often decide, I'm going to support something in the health sector, and then they look for what works best within that sector. But that just pushes the buck to someone else to then decide, how do we allocate across the sectors? A second thing that happens, people rely on their own intuition, their own reasons. But often the people that are relying on their own intuition are very far away from the recipients of that aid and don't necessarily know how those people think through those trade-offs. The third thing we do very often, we rely on data from high-income countries. So there is high-income data to inform these value judgments, but what there isn't is data from the low-income countries where these charities are working um, that can be used. So people just extrapolate directly to this income level and assume that hopefully that will give us part of the answer. What people do much less often, um, not never, I know that there's a growing movement of people that are trying to do this, um, but what people do much less often is make trade-offs that are informed by the views and the preferences of the recipients of that aid. So what we've been doing is partnering with GiveWell directly since 2017, so for about two years now, to capture preferences to directly inform their moral weights. And we've been really thinking about these two questions for the last, uh, last two years. So first of all, is it feasible to capture the preferences of the recipients of aid relevant to these subject value judgments? This is not an easy, easy task, as I'm sure you can imagine. Like, how do you even start? How do you go about it? So let me tell you what we did. 
So first of all, we spent a very long time piloting. I said Buddy spoke a year and a half ago. We spent about a year and a half straight just piloting to try and figure out what works, what doesn't work, what gives us useful data. Um, and we settled eventually on three main methods. Um, none of these methods alone is perfect, and I think it's really important that we have three different methods that are capturing this from different points of view. The first thing we did was capture value of statistical life. This is the measure that's most often used in high-income countries to try and put a dollar value on life, and that's used by governments like in the US and in the UK to make these really difficult trade-offs. Um, what we also did was two choice experiments. And here we asked people to think about what they want for their community. And the first asked people to trade off between saving lives of different ages. An example would be, would you rather have a program that saves 100 lives of under five-year-olds or 500 lives of over 40? And we ask everyone which one they prefer, and we aggregate across the whole population to get a relative value of different ages. And then our last choice experiment, which I'll go into more detail on later, um, does a similar thing, but looks specifically at saving lives and providing cash transfers. And what we did practically, we interviewed around 2,000 typical aid recipients across Kenya and Ghana. And this has been over the last eight months or so of 2019. Um, we conducted quantitative interviews with really low-income households across many communities. And what became increasingly important as we went on was that we also conducted these qualitative interviews with individuals and with um, groups of people to understand how they're responding to our questions and how they're really processing these difficult trade-offs. Did it work? That's a big question. Um, and... My take on this is that overall, a majority of respondents demonstrated a good understanding of our approaches. I say a majority, it definitely wasn't everyone. Um, these are complicated questions that you're asking people to engage with. But some of the things that reassure us of this understanding, first of all, we spent a lot of time developing visual aids to really guide people through the trade-offs. This photo is from one of the interviews and you can see our enumerator on the left holding the visual aids and the beneficiary um, pointing at her choice, which presumably is the program on the left here. Um, we also, as I said, we did qualitative work to really understand how people are interpreting our questions, if they're falling into some of the pitfalls that these questions present um, and misinterpreting the questions or how to make the trade-offs. And the third thing, the most quantitative thing, was we had inbuilt understanding tests for every single method. And we had relatively high pass rates ranging from 60 to 80% of our sample. We eventually excluded those who clearly didn't understand. So our estimates come purely from the sample of people who did understand, which again increases our confidence. Okay, great. On to the good bit, which is the results. So overall, I think we've said it's feasible. It's not been easy. It's resource intensive. And you really do have to put a lot of effort into making sure the data is high quality. But... I do think we've captured actual preferences from these individuals. So for the rest of the presentation, I'm going to walk you through these. So I'm going to start with a high-level look at the results, which really is as simple as I can get with these results. And as you can imagine, there's a lot behind them that I'm then going to try and unpack a little bit. What we found at the highest level is that respondents place a really high value on life, particularly on the value of life um, for young children. On the left, you'll see the results of our study in quite a crude dollar value um, for a death averted of individuals under five and um, individuals five and older. Now, in the middle, you'll see what happens when you predict what this value should be for this population based on high income data. And what we found was that our results are quite a bit higher than what people expected for this population. Now, if you look on the right, 
this is um, transformed into dollar values, the median of GiveWell's 2018 moral weights. So we use this as our benchmark of trying to figure out where we are and what the impact is potentially for GiveWell. And you'll see here that our results are substantially higher than their results were from last year. Just getting into that a little bit more, um, and just to stress on this, this is GiveWell's 2018 moral weights, and they're currently updating these with these results in mind. So we use this as a benchmark, but not doesn't necessarily represent where they are now. But what we found was that our results, particularly for individuals under five, are nearly five times as high as the GiveWell median moral weights for individuals under five. Um, and this is driven by two things. One is that overall, people are placing a higher value on life um, than predicted. And two, that people consistently value individuals under five higher than other individuals that we ask about. And as you saw on the previous slide, um, a lot of GiveWell staff members, their ranking of individuals is flipped compared to that. So we really see this big difference in the value of under five. Um, we also see a difference in the value of over five. It's about 1.7 times higher. So what does this mean? So to try and understand the impact of this, what we did was just take these results and put them directly into GiveWell's cost-effectiveness model and say, what does that do to the cost-effectiveness of the different charities? And as you might imagine, we've, we've seen here that higher value is placed on saving individuals under five. And so we see that the cost-effectiveness of um, Helen Keller International, Malaria Consortium, and Against Malaria Foundation increases when you really um, default to these values. And the same would be true outside of GiveWell. Any cost-effectiveness study or any cost-benefit study that's making this trade-off, if they were to use the results, it would be shifted towards life-saving interventions. Now, there's a whole host of reasons why this might not be the answer. It might not be perfect to just default to beneficiary preferences. There's a lot of reasons why you might not want to just take that value at face, at face value. And I'll walk you through some of that now. So... What I've said so far is the simple aggregated result. And for that, we take our three methods, we come up with an average, and then we compare it to GiveWell. But once you really get into the data, you see that there's a lot more going on. So I'm going to go into the details of just one of our methods here. This was the third choice experiment I mentioned, which gets at the relative value of money in life. This is actually one of the visual aids that we used. So one of the things that they were pointing to in that blue folder, um, the language is Swahili from our Kenya study. And this is what we did. We asked them to choose between two programs. Program A on the left, save lives, and it gives cash transfers, but it gives substantially more cash transfers. Program B on the right saves one more life, but it gives substantially less cash transfers. We randomly changed the bottom in the left um, corner, which was the number of cash transfers so that um, people got three random choices within a range, and we looked for people switching points. If people didn't switch, we then pushed to the, them to the extreme and said, okay, if you prefer cash, what if the difference is now only one cash transfer and one life? Which one would you pick? And on the other side, if they always pick life, we push the number of cash transfers really high, 1,000, 10,000. What would you do then? Will you eventually switch? So we're really looking for people who have very absolute views rather than just high valuations. And what we find is that our high values really are driven by a large chunk of it, the respondents who always choose life-saving interventions. So 38% of our respondents still pick the program that saves one extra life, even when it was compared to $10,000, $1,000 cash transfers. 
So that would represent um, a value of over $10 million on a single life, which is far above what's predicted for this population. And if we were to fully incorporate this preference, and I say that because this isn't given full weight in our simple average, if we were to fully um, put weight on this preference, the value would be much higher towards life-saving interventions. So our question then was, what does that mean? What's happening with these respondents? Why are they expressing this view? Are they not really engaging with the question? Maybe um, they have a completely different way of thinking about it. And what we found was that Really, for many re respondents, this does represent a clear moral stance. And this we really figured out through our qualitative work. Um, I've put one quote here just as an example of how clear people are on their views. This respondent in Magori County, Kenya said, if there is one sick child in Magori County that needs treatment, it's better to give all the money to save the child than give everyone in the country cash transfers. And I can hear all the EAs in the room panicking at a statement like that. It's very different from the typical utilitarian way of thinking about this trade-off. And we tried to understand why and what the main reasons were that people were choosing this. Two big things came out. The first of which was that people place a really high value on even a very small potential that a child might become something very significant in the future. We heard again and again, we don't know which child might succeed and help this entire community. This one child might become the leader. They might become the economic force of the future. Um, and so they really place a high value on that small potential and preserving that potential that this young child deserves over giving cash to lots of people, which will have a smaller impact across more people. The second thing we saw was people holding this view that life holds this very inherent value that just cannot be compared to cash. So this is almost the, the opposite of the utilitarian view. This is starting from a deontological point of just, you can't make this trade-off. It starts from a moral standpoint of life is more important. And a lot of people express that view, and sometimes it's grounded in religion, and you do hear people quoting their religion and the sanctity of life. But for others, it's separate from religion, just a moral standpoint that they hold. And then it gets interesting again, because what happens if we look then at the people that did switch? So we have 38% of our respondents that choose life no matter what. Now what happens if we look at the 54% that did switch between life and cash at some point? And what happens if you look just at this group is you see that they act more like the typical utilitarians. So approximately half of the 54% of respondents are willing to switch below a level of 30 cash transfers. So that comes out as an implied value of about $30,000. And if you remember the values from the earlier slides, that's very similar to the, the values that are already seen in Givoire's moral weights and they're already seen in the literature. So if we were to focus only on the people that hold this moral view, the answer is actually reasonably similar to what we already think. So I think it leaves us with this very interesting question of what do we do with the third of respondents who apply a completely different framework to this situation? An easy answer might be, these are people who are engaging with the trade-off. Maybe we should look at their value and put more weight on that. But then does that mean we're going to ignore the preferences of a third of respondents who really do think in a different way to this typical utilitarian framework? Um, and I won't linger on this, but we also looked at the qual of the people who, who do switch. And what we see is that the reasons they give are very similar to the reasons that we probably all give when we try and think through these trade-offs. Um, and very similar to the types of reasons that give our staff members give when they're trying to come up with their moral weights. So just to sum up, what have we found? 
I think on, a, on average, we found that aid recipients do place more value on life, particularly those of young children than predicted. What we also know is that these results can be directly incorporated into resource allocation decisions straight away. So GiveWell is already um, working on updating their moral weights using this data, and we've already been talking to other organizations who might similarly be interested in using them. And that the answer might be that more focus should be placed on life-saving interventions. But, and this is a very big but, the framework used by respondents to answer these questions is different from the typical framework that's used. And I think a lot more thought is needed to really understand what that means and how we can understand and interpret these results and apply them to these really difficult decisions. I don't think anyone is going to take it as straightforwardly as taking this number and applying that to the decision. We need to work through all of these different ways of thinking about it to understand how best to apply them. Um, so what's next? Um, I've just kind of scratched the surface of the study here. We did a lot of other things in the study, and I'm very happy to discuss later with anyone who's interested. But one thing that we would also love to do from here is to apply a similar approach to capture preferences from more populations. I think what we've shown is that these preferences are different from what was expected, and there were substantial regional and country-level variations. It wasn't just a uniform, the preference was the same. So I think there's a lot of value in continuing to capture these preferences and continuing to form our thinking about how to incorporate the view of the recipients of, um, of charity. And there's also a lot of related questions that we haven't even touched on. We focused on some really high-level trade-offs between cash and life, but there's a large number of trade-offs that decision-makers have to make that we haven't gone near that I think potentially you could do with a similar approach. And then, as I've mentioned, there's also a lot of work to do now to understand how best to apply these results in real-world decision-making. So, effectively, any, any study using cost-benefit of interventions in low-middle-income countries could immediately implement these results, and we'd like to work with different people to figure out how they can actually do that and what the best approach is for them to incorporate. Um, I think there's also an opportunity here for nonprofits to try and include preferences into their decision-making. Again, we would love to try and figure out what that could look like. And I think even at a higher level, we would um, love to see foundations, philanthropists, other organizations trying to think more about how they can incorporate preferences into their own personal resource allocation. So that's something we're thinking about right now. Great. That's everything. Thank you. <laughs> All righty. Thank you very much, Alice. Great talk. Thanks. We have questions uh, beginning to come in through the Whova app where you can submit yours. So first question, which I thought was really interesting because it kind of contradicted my uh, intuition on this, which my intuition was just, this is brilliant. It seems super smart and kind of obvious in retrospect, as Toby said, to ask people what they think. But one questioner is kind of challenging that assumption a bit and saying, how much do we want to trust the moral framework of the recipients. For example, and this is what kind of caught my attention, if you were to ask folks in different places how they weight, relatively speaking, the moral uh, importance of women versus men, for example, you might get uh, some results that you would kind of dismiss out of hand. So how do you think about that from a kind of high philosophical level? Yeah, this is really tricky. I think that Essentially, there has to be a limit to how far you can go with these results. Um, another one, an example that I think about often is the link between income. 
uh, effectively, when you do a lot of these studies, what you find again and again is how tied these results are to income. And there's this really dangerous step beyond that where you say, if someone has a higher income, their life is valued higher. So should we be prioritizing saving the lives of richer people, which I don't think anyone is particularly comfortable with. So I think it's, it's about, I don't know where the line is, but there's a process here to figure out where the line is, what the application of these results is, and how far we can go with it. It definitely can't be just defaulting to it, because I think that leads us to some dangerous places, as you pointed out. Yeah. So a, a kind of practical question, I, th- and I think you covered this, but I didn't quite parse it. So for the third of people that never switched, how did you ultimately end up weighting them into those final numbers that you Sure. At the beginning. Yeah. So I think I said um, with this choice experiment, everyone makes three choices that are randomly assigned. And then we go to the extremes and that's how we identify the non-switches. So to estimate, we really take the value of those three random choices. So essentially it puts a cap on how high someone's estimate can be valued as. It's at the limit of the, those random choices and not above, which gives us um, you know, a good estimation model and it allows us to come up with a single value, but it does detract from how high the value is of these people. And like I said, when we incorporate it fully, the value comes out way higher, like 50 times higher because their value is near infinite. So it's, it's, it definitely changes the results. Um, but I think you have to do that to have a number that you can then process and work with. So in, in very practical terms, I'm recalling that graph where you had kind of 10, you know, 20 through a hundred and then a yeah. thousand, 10,000, a hundred would be the highest yeah. that anyone could be weighted even if they never switched yeah exactly but and then the model treats it as you know if they're higher than 100 it gets some weight it can go above 100 but it's capped at that point gotcha okay cool um tell me about some of the other approaches that you tried i mean i think some of the most interesting aspects of this work are actually figuring out how to ask these questions in a way that produces meaningful results even if they're not perfect so sounds like there's a dozen other approaches that were tried (laughs) and ultimately didn't work. So tell us a bit about that. Sure. Yeah. So it was a real process to figure out what works and I think trying to figure out what different biases change the results in specific directions. So, um, I mean, even this choice experiment has been through many iterations. At one point, we had a very direct framing of just, would you save a life or give this many cash transfers? But when it's very direct, and I think this has been shown in behavioral economics elsewhere, when it's very direct, people are really inclined just to never switch and always choose the life. Um, Whereas as soon as you make it indirect, people are willing to engage with the trade-off and you actually get at their preferences. Um, So there's a lot of kind of framing edits. We also tried um, some kind of participatory budgeting exercises, which is something that is being tried out and being used in this area. Um, But it's again, it's tricky. There's a lot of motivation to allocate resources like very evenly when you're in that kind of group setting. Um, And also the results are kind of less directly applicable to to the problem at hand. So. Yeah, I think those are two big things we tried out. There's there's many. Again, happy to talk through all of those. We did a lot of um, different willingness to pay ones that we ended up ruling out as well. So a, a lot of questions, again, coming through the Whova app. Um, you're going to have office hours immediately following yes. this, correct? So uh, if your question doesn't get asked here, you can follow up with Alice and, and ask it in person. An interesting one, again, that kind of goes to you know things that maybe weren't even tried. Um, So all of these frameworks were kind of defined by you, right, as the experimenter. Did you guys try to do anything where you sort of invited the recipients to present their own framework kind of from scratch? 
Oh, that's interesting. So in a way we did. Um, we did a lot of, like I said, individual qualitative interviews. And those individual qualitative interviews were not grounded in the three methods that I presented here. They were completely separate to that. And a big part of those was just presenting them with the give well problem of how do you work through this and then getting people to walk us through. It's with some people, it's very effective. Some people are very willing to engage. But as you can imagine, some people are like taken aback. This is a complicated question. Um, and so we, we tried it in that sense. I think trying to go beyond doing that qualitatively, I, I believe that was another thing that we tried at one point and it just ended up being too complicated to get people to really engage with it. I think for us, simplifying it down to a single choice is what helped make these, um, make these methods work. Uh, but qualitatively, you can go into that detail. Awesome. Well, this is yeah. fascinating work, uh, and there's obviously a lot more work to be done in yeah. this area. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have at the moment for Q&A, so please, another round of applause for Alice Redfern. Thank Great you. job. Thank you for joining us.